Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 1887, Paris. Most of the other girls have already gone when you notice the stranger lurking in the wings. You catch his eye. He smiles, but holds your gaze a moment too long. You feel the magical thrill of the night's performance fade just a bit. You force a smile and return to your post-show routine. You remove your point shoes and untie your hair, letting it fall just a moment. You unwind like this after every show. But tonight, you feel the stranger's eyes on you, sizing you up, evaluating. His gaze makes your whole body tighten. A fellow ballerina catches sight of the stranger as she leaves. She glances at him, then back at you. She nods knowingly. You return her smile, but it's false, a cover for the discomfort that has settled over you. You knew this day might come. Your mother was right. Now that you're 16, things are bound to change. You try to recall the energy of the performance, the exhilaration of being on stage, of soaring through the air with impeccable grace. Even as the man approaches, you try to wrestle these thoughts in your head. Dancing is all that matters, you tell yourself. It's all there is. And you'll do what you must to return to this stage time and again. The man tips his hat and extends his hand. You reach hesitantly to take it and he bends to kiss your fingers. Pleased to meet you, miss. You're quite the sight out there. You're quite a sight here, too. His eyes search your face for a response. You could go very far, he says. He raises a hand to your cheek. You flinch at his touch, then cover it with the sweetest smile you can muster. Thank you, sir. He extends an arm care to join me for coffee? I'd love to discuss the show. Your hesitation doesn't bode well. In fact, he looks momentarily offended. I can help you, you know, he says, a new edge to his voice. He continues, I've been watching you for a long time and have looked forward to this day. You take his arm slowly and nod. Inside, you're terrified, but you're relieved to see the man is smiling again. He gestures to the door. Shall we go? Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. Today, we're pulling back the curtain on the world of ballet with the spectacular Dr. Sheila Hoffman exploring a time when ballerinas were beholden to wealthy patrons who, well, <laughs> 
let's just say I have a lot of respect for the young performers who had to dance their hearts out while being watched from the wings by a creepy battalion of, well, shall we call them uncles? Turns out that ballet in the City of Light was a whole lot darker than I ever realized. I hope you learn as much as I did in this episode. So let's tie up our point shoes and head to Paris for a dazzling and, I'm not going to lie, at times unnerving night at the ballet. Sheila is an adjunct faculty member both in the Graduate Program for Museum Studies at Tufts University and in Art History at the University of Massachusetts. She has not one, but two PhDs, one in Art History and the other in Museology, Heritage, and Cultural Mediation. She's lived in five different countries and wandered through more than a dozen others as an art historian, museum curator, and iconologist. She's been invited to lecture widely from China, Japan, and Russia to Cuba, the US, and Canada. Her research focuses on how digital technologies can be used to capture, preserve, and disseminate world heritage. She has authored several books and articles and serves as reviews editor for the international journal, Museum Worlds. Today, we're going to be exploring the world of ballet in late 19th century Paris from roughly 1880 to 1900, the so-called fin de siècle. And Sheila, before I ask you to, to set the stage for us here, so to speak, sorry, pun intended, uh, I, think I, I think I made up a specialty for you. I think I called you a symbologist, but in fact, are you an iconologist? And if so, please, could you could you please tell us the difference? Of course, I would love to because you didn't actually make up the word. Um, the word was made up by Dan Brown, who is or his publishers, who is the author of the Da Vinci Code, and the person in the Da Vinci Code, Robert Langdon, the star of it, is mm -hmm. what should be called an iconologist, someone who studies symbols. But the publishers and the author decided no one's going to know what that is, so call him a symbolist. <laughs> everyone knows what that is. So you're not That's wrong. Funny. And at the same time, there is a small difference. Most iconologists, and there aren't many of us, would say a symbologist doesn't exist, but we all have to, you know, accept the term every once in a while. <laughs> Sometimes you have to go with the recognizable and marketable. Yeah. Well, okay, good. You are both symbologist and iconologist. Correct. <laughs> Sheila, can you tell us a little bit about this world? Set the stage for us, so to speak. All right, so today we're actually going to be delving into the world of fin de siècle Paris. And most people know this period in French history or European history from the Impressionists, right? The, the beautiful kind of pastel, pretty paintings. Oh, yes, uh, so pretty. Just a very so brief pretty. period of art history. But, you know, this is Monet and his water lilies. And, you know, Degas we're talking about a little bit today, his dancers. So most people have very positive connotations about this time. But this was a period of massive technological change and a hugely shifting society because of that technological change. Now, not technology like digital technology like we have, but the world was becoming smaller in a way because of things like um, fast travel and fast communication. I mean, oh, okay. motives were coming into the fore, you know, and people could communicate across, across continents faster than ever before. So the world was really changing and everyone at the time period thought that they were on the, they were at the, the moment of modernity. They were like the, the height oh. of human ability at that moment, which is a very cool time to be in. But of yeah. course, underneath all of that 
like always, whenever there's that kind of gilding on top, you know, there's a, there's an underbelly. Um, and there's kind of, the underbelly is often a little bit seedy. So there's that too. It's a beautiful time. There's lovely paintings, lovely pictures, but that's uh, also a time period when there's, you know, some darkness in there. And uh, unfortunately, the world of ballet actually uh, has both of those sides to it as well. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to hear about this because I, I have to confess that when I think about ballet, period, of any time period, I imagine these paintings that we've all seen in museums. And yeah, the impression is of lightness and airy, frothy, just beauty. Let's, let's dive right in. Please, could you just drop us down on the stage with one of these dancers and let us know what, what her day starts like? What, what's she thinking about when she wakes up? Well, let's let's actually start like on the stage as you suggest. Now, this is the this is the theater. Let's say the late eighteen eighties or eighteen nineties, somewhere around here. The stage is still lit literally by limelights, and you know you want to be the star of the show, but there are all sorts of like um, there's the corps de ballet around you, and when you're on that stage, you are a fairy and a fairy princess around the eighteen fifties. Ballet started to become much more romantic and it was right around that time period that it started focusing more on women too. Prior to that period, prior to the 1850s, it really focused more on men. And really? Yeah. Oh, tell me and, about that. Well, in fact, you know, Louis the 14th was the person who created the ballet. This was, this was a school for court dancing. This was a place where court dancing could be taught and then people could learn to show off in the court among courtiers. And when he created the academy for this, he um, had free tuition, admission through selection. There were even little salaries paid. There was a professional frame to education for the first time in what they called the ballet. Um, these, these balls, these dances, right? And okay. originally, Louis was the star of those ballets and he would costume- The king himself? himself. <laughs> the king himself, the sun king himself, right? And so these were massive theatrical um, kind of performances. Eventually you see it morph into the opera. And of course, Paris is famous for its opera, right? Um, the Paris opera. But right. when that happened, the ballet was actually kind of a, a sub- um, sub-performance of the opera. The ballerinas were just called in in the interludes, you know, the divertissement between different acts of the opera. Oh, um, so they were the light, the light entertainment in between the main events. Exactly, exactly. But eventually they became so good and people loved them so much that the, their own ballet started. And that was right around the 1850s, eventually 1880s, 1890s. You've got a full on like school, people are competitive, like competitively trying to get into it. There's competition among the dancers. Everyone wants to be the star on the stage because it can, it can make your family, it can make your career. To be on that stage was something really important. And the women that did this, and of course there were men, but I do want to talk about the women because they had a little bit of a different, you know, kind of character to 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 the lifestyle of the dancer which is really what we're about to talk about right though working overtime is really anybody who's ever been on the stage in any generation in any sense <laughs> knows that it's not an eight-hour day it's not no. where you get breaks and you get you know like fair treatment and compensation no you are performing your heart out right even when you're in rehearsal when you're in dance classes well um, and ballet is so athletic. I mean, it looks so beautiful and elegant and ethereal, but the athleticism is, is just astonishing. And actually the athleticism wasn't quite 
to the same level it is today. Um, at the same time, it was becoming increasingly athletic at that time period. There was a very famous uh, dancer at the time, Marie Taglioni, uh, who was said to have invented point shoes. And so all of a sudden, this was part of why women were more focused on because they could dance these beautiful, lovely, sylph-like dances that no one had ever seen before. So it was a real source of entertainment. And but so what did the toe shoes change? Well, they allowed the woman, of course, to go all the way up on the very point of her foot. And when you see that from far, far away in the theater, and a woman is dancing on what, an inch, two inches of space, like basically on her big toe, right? In these beautiful satin shoes underneath a diaphanous skirt, it looks like she's floating. It looks like she's from yeah. another world. And it feeds right into the romanticism of so much that's going on in the 1800s as well. I mean, other arts are moving and changing, especially painting. We've got realism, we've got the impressionists, but you know, the, the onstage arts are very much still romantic and this fed right into it. And so how did the creation of these special toe shoes change the training for the ballet? Well, of course, you have to be, um, you have to have a different sort of balance when you're in toe shoes. You have to have a different sort of strength. They would have called for um, new masters of the dance form, uh, new positions kind of being, uh, let's kind of cataloged, right? Like kind of locked into place for future generations. Like this is the way to do it. And if there's anything that Parisian academies of any kind do, it's to formalize the work, right? To say this okay. is correct and this is incorrect. And this is where we start to see where even though the school was created, the school for the ballet, the academy for the ballet was created in Louis XIV's time. We're, I mean, we're talking in the 17th century, right? Um, by the 19th century, we've gotten a real formality to it. There's particular positions, there's particular vocabulary, um, even the school itself, you know, 90% of the people who applied to it didn't get in. Oh, that competitive. Wow. A small percentage of those who were accepted ever made it to the to the, the stage or to stardom at least. Um, so it was really grueling. And um, you asked about the day. The, the day was like nonstop. You might have one day off a week and then six days a week you were getting up early. Um, at certain periods there would have been, later on there would have been an academic part of the instruction. I don't know that in the late 19th century that the women in the school were getting academic instruction as well as you know the ballet instruction but that would have taken place in the morning all afternoon they would have had technique classes performance classes rehearsals variations with partners if they had it or in the corps de ballet and then you've got you know you've got time on different days you have to dress up in your costumes you have to do um, rehearsals in costumes and then start times what seven o'clock eight o'clock uh you you hit the you hit the stage and anyone that has ever been on the stage knows that when you come off that stage when the performance is over the curtains are closed and the bows have been taken it's not over everyone's like high on adrenaline you are excited you might be completely fatigued but you're not going to bed anytime soon so grueling no. <laughs> days of just constant constant torture you know but you have to love it People were rehearsing all day long, it sounds like. And were they fed on site? I mean, were, were these actual like um, sort of conservatory type, type um, setups where the women all lived and were fed and rehearsed and performed there? 
Yeah, you you can think of this a little bit like Hogwarts, right? <laughs> like this is um, oh, that feeds right into the romantic image, <laughs> right? Exactly. So I mean, yeah, you'd have the they would you would have had breaks for for meals, and you know, at a certain point, there would have been like uh, institutional foods, so a cafeteria style, like here's your food, girls, eat it up. And you have to understand that this might have been Paris, but there was they were not eating foie gras and escargot, right? This is oh. Cafeteria food, right? And so they they were taken care of and they would have like lived in dormitories with multiple girls in a room. They would have had matrons over them. Um, A lot of these women by the late 19th century would have come from poorer classes of people. And part of the reason for that was because to have a small salary given to you for being on the stage, for being in the school even, you know, and to potentially make it to stardom and a career as a woman, that was a rare thing. And to have it, to have it be to end as someone of any status of society, whether you were poor or rich, was also a way that lower class people could advance their status in society to uh, feed their kids, to earn more, you know, to get themselves off the streets sometimes. Oh, and, how interesting. Okay. Yeah. And that actually happened right around, um, so after the French Revolution, things began to democratize. And then, of course, under Napoleon Bonaparte, there was the Empire of France, and he tried to institute these democratizations where it wasn't just the aristocracy who got the benefit of various things like academies, but it was it was everybody. And so it was at that point, you started to see juries organized where people could come in and they were admitted if they had you know, body types and flexibility and grace and whatnot. So were they, they recruited based on um, perceived potential as opposed to having to bring some basic level of skill in dance to these Absolutely. juries? Absolutely. It was, it was all potential. You know, what was your body type? You know, if you're, wow. if you're, you're short and heavy, they're probably not going to choose you. If you're really tall with long limbs and flexible, then they would probably see you as a great potential. And of course, that's just potential. You still had to earn your way, earn your way in. But so many of these young women, what young women were from like lower class families that the high society France used to call them uh, the little rats. Les petits rats. The rats? The oh. rats. Like, <laughs> as if, you know, rats from a sinking ship. Wow, that's, that's a really kind of chilling uh, metaphor, um, you know, because the, the, these high society people presumably were very happy to shell out money to go and watch these little rats entertain them. It's more than that. <laughs> oh, these these patrons, the the wealthy patrons, certainly shelled out money to to see these beautiful productions beautiful theater sets now newly being designed by famous designers and famous artists. The costumes, the same thing. Um, But when Charles Garnier designed the famous uh, Garnier um, Paris Opera House in the 1860s, he included a special entrance for um, what were called abonnés or the season subscription holders. And those special entrances led to essentially the warm-up rooms for the women. What? They were essentially a private men's club, but the women there, the young, the young women, the girls would be there warming up, stretching, getting ready for performance while the men took a cigar and had a, a nifty of brand, uh, for brandy. So, so these wealthy patrons, males, mm-hmm. were essentially given access to 
the, the equivalent of the locker room for these women. Yes, exactly. That is exactly and it. Did the families of these girls understand this? Not only did they understand that, but they probably encouraged the young women, their daughters, if you can imagine, to um, accept the attention of these rich older gentlemen. And it's really wow. hard for us in our modern setting to, first of all, accept that women, you know, maybe even at that age would have um, encouraged such attention um, or welcomed such attention. But again, remember that there are very few ways that a woman, a woman can earn money at this time period. And so taking advantage of anything that comes your way to your family as a way to, to, to raise your level in society, to get off the streets, to give yourself an advantage. These patrons could pay for um, different ballet masters who would give you an edge over the competition. They would pay for maybe private apartments uh, for you. They would pay for new clothes or take you out in society so that you could raise your status as a star. You know, these were the people who voted with their subscriptions. And so they had a lot of pull over who was on the stage. And if you were to be dismissive or, you know, to maybe um, upset one of these gentlemen, it could also mean that you no longer had a place within that company. A striking truth, unfortunately. And you talk about money and the potential for upward mobility for these women, mm -hmm. these young women who are placed by their families in these, these performing schools. What kind of payday could they expect and how might that compare to what other minimal options they might have to earn money? I can't speak to it in terms of actual dollars or francs, as it were. Um, based on you know what it would be comparative to today i think there's there's far too many um uh things to take into consideration to make an apples to apples comparison but certainly you could say that first of all if you were to earn your place in a in the company in the paris ballet you would be earning a, a regular wage which is something right because that a regular wage isn't necessarily something that could be um easily earned outside the house by women in that time period um, right there are not many ways to do it. And then if you were to become a star, it would lead to all sorts of other opportunities for you to, to increase that wealth or to, to capitalize on that fame, right? So um, it, it is something that they would want, right? And no matter how minimal it might seem to us today. These families who clearly are on the fringes of society, economically speaking, and, and presumably socially as well, how did they become aware of these opportunities to present their daughters for consideration at these schools? That is actually a very good question and I'm not sure. It would be just supposition on my part to, to answer that. Um, yeah, would, let's suppose, let's think about it. <laughs> well, it would either be word of mouth, uh, right? Well, did you hear about so-and-so's daughter who got accepted to this or to that, you know, and now they, they make a small salary and, you know, they're off the streets or they're off, you know, out of the, out of the house. And when there's mm. no birth control and you have a lot of children, you, a lot of mouths to feed and very few beds, you know, maybe that's a good thing right? Even when they're 12, yeah. nine, right? Or 14. 
Um, so, or maybe there are actual posters that no longer exist that advertise the opportunities to, young, you know, to families and say, hey, ever thought about being a star kid, you know? <laughs> sort of was envisioning the, the way people are discovered for modeling careers when they're waiting for a train <laughs> at Penn Station these days, right. you know? I mean, are they out sweeping the a coal scuttle or something and, and one of these gentlemen taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, little girl, come with me. <laughs> you know? Right, so, well, you know, I, I, I don't imagine that there, there, there wasn't some of that as well. Um, I think that, that that's maybe likely, but of course there's the, still that kind of the jury you have to go in front of in order to like uh, be accepted for this, this school, no matter what. So it was very much dependent on your body type or, or whatever. Do you think that the women in these schools, they clearly were experiencing day-to-day -day life with their rehearsals and their performances uh, just as an exhausting, um, you know, uh, uh, gauntlet really, right? Do you, do you think any of them might have banded together to offer mutual support and encouragement? Or was competition kind of the rule of the day, given the nature of how they all had to try to be the best? I, it's a great question. And I think the answer is really both. Um, first of all, we're talking about teenage girls. So prepubescent. Oh, right. Of course. How silly of me to even ask. <laughs> <laughs> so straight up teenage girls are really hard on each other, right? In any generation. Oh, yeah. And that I can imagine, though I don't know of any particular sources, like primary sources of the time that like a diary or something that would speak to this. Um, maybe, maybe there is, and who knows how varnished that truth is. But, you know, I can certainly imagine that it's like any other, like, grade school, I'm a middle school or high school clique, right? Where there are the girls who seem to have it made, and maybe they make it hard for the other girls. Maybe they they mock them or, you know, try to play tricks on them and whatnot, uh, cut their slippers or, you know, oh. you know, vandalize certain things. Just yeah, to, just the same old, same old. Yeah, that's not changed. <laughs> right. But at the same time, I think that we we are human. We find human bonds wherever we are. And I can imagine that women become very deep friends. You know, when you live with someone, um, you find those people who support you no matter what, those people whose shoulder you can cry on or who need to cry on your shoulder sometimes. So I think it's it's really both. But in any kind of competitive universe, you know, you're kind of at the same time kind of on your own because it's at the end of the day, everyone wants to be that person who's solo on the stage. Yeah, the one in the limelight, yeah. the star, all that that entailed. All that entails, right. Yeah. Wow. And so what were the biggest responsibilities that one of these young women, or let's face it, they really sound like girls, at least when they begin. Let's think about somebody new to this program and yeah, what, what is her biggest responsibility? I would think that her biggest responsibility is to her family, making sure that she makes it. And so by, by um, extension, that ability is getting to be the best that she can be you know, um, making herself better than any of the other competition out there uh, in the school. And then I hate to say it, but also pleasing the patrons, right? To whatever extent that she had um, garnered attention from patrons to make sure that she encouraged it and didn't deny it because that was a sure way to be kicked out. There is a, a painting by a relatively unknown artist. I mean, everybody's heard, probably heard of Edgar Degas, but there's a painting of uh, young dancers um, by a man named Jean Berthaud, which is in the Musée Carnavalet in Paris. This is the Museum of 
Parisian history, really, uh, like the local city history. Mm -hmm. And it's called The Wings of the Opera. And it's painted in 1889, right smack in the middle of the period that we're talking about. And it's very explicit. Here we've got these wealthy patrons that are in this like gentlemen's private men's club, you know, backstage, but they're literally backstage. They are sitting there in their, their top hats and their tails, and they've got their arms around two, sometimes three women. There are these young girls like stretching their legs up, you know, and having eyes cast upon their naked little wrists and their tiny little ankles as they do so while men kind of smoke and drink and whatnot. It's a startling compositions because it's really not that good of an art piece like art historically speaking but it's a stunning kind of realism take on what was happening at that time period what were these paintings created for well that's a really interesting question because the most famous artist who painted um portraits of ballerinas is edgar degas most people know him for that and they call him an impressionist but Degas was not really an Impressionist. Um, the Impressionists, as, as pretty as their paintings were, and as much as people know that, perhaps they know that they were trying to capture a moment, a fleeting sense of light, for example, really what they were doing was mimicking technology, the fleeting sense of a moment, oh. newly technological space. And Degas was not really part of that, although he kind of employed some of these gestural qualities to his art. Really, Degas was a realist, and that's what makes his art, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to ruin some of it for you, because as much as it portrays beautiful- You're well, you're well on your way there. Keep going. It's okay. I can, I can handle it, Sheila. <laughs> These pretty girls on the stage, if you look really closely on almost all of his works about ballet dancers, there's something just a little bit wrong. There's a painting from 1878 called L'Etoile. That means the star, and that's star of the show. The woman who's got all the attention, she's in the middle of a curtain call at the very end of the show. People are probably throwing roses, if I remember correctly. But, and it's all pastels and beautiful light, and it's, you know, it's all a little bit blurry like the Impressionists do. And in the backstage, and just in the wings, you see this like dark figure, and he's ominous. Now, what we understand that to be is a patron who's in a tuxedo, and he's standing in the wings, but he's waiting. And anyone who's ever been on a stage knows that if you're not one of the performers, get out of the backstage because right? Well, he's paid to have that free access and he is waiting for his prize right there. And that's right, it's famously right there in front of race, but of course we don't see it. No, it's amazing when you say that. Um, I, I, I'm gonna have to go and look at all of these things again and, and with a, a much more critical eye. Um, it's so frightening when you start to look at it. There's one, it's called Dancers, Pink and Green. And of course you see these beautiful dancers dancing around in these pastel colors and whatnot. And you almost don't notice that there's, there's a column in kind of a, just to the right of the center in the, this painting. But all of a sudden you notice that this co column has an interesting shape. It's not straight. It's got a belly and a hat. <laughs> and you can see it like this, this silhouette of a fat man admiring these dancers as he's, he's you know, leaning up against a, a column. And if you think about that from these modern perspectives, like um, there are these, these men who have paid to watch your daughter's ballet rehearsal, it kind of grosses you out. <laughs> 
expression. Sure does. I mean, this is not like one of these wholesome meet and greets that no. you can pay extra for with a, a, a pop star. Oh, these yeah. Days. Well, there's there's one that really kind of uh, kind of ooves me out. It's called the rehearsal of the ballet on stage. It's from 1874, and it actually shows the women doing a, a rehearsal or a dress rehearsal. It's it's hard to tell. So they're they're on the stage. That's what their rehearsal is. Seated on the stage with them, and you know how tight the stages are. Seated on the stage with them are two well dressed men, and they have privileged access to be on the stage. They're not the ballet master. They're not the person leading it. They're not the necessarily the person who's in charge of the lights or the theater owner or anything like that. They're, one of them is sitting backwards on a on a chair. He's still got his top hat on. Backwards? Did they do oh, that yeah. then? <laughs> Back then, yeah. What, was his top hat on backwards too? Yeah, the baseball cap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other one is like slung down low in his chair. His hands are in his pocket. His big belt crossed out, you know, and all he's doing is admiring these girls, his private little exhibition of these women. (laughs) Okay. I just, I have to ask you, what do you think was Degas purpose and, and other artists like him uh, in creating such paintings depicting this really ugly underbelly of the ballet? That's why I said that Degas was a realist, because the realists were actually interested in the uglier portions of society. They weren't willing to just continue to paint, you know, pretty little pictures, pretty little portraits, you know, uh, lovely biblical scenes. And they wanted to paint reality as it was, even the, the underbellies of it. And so they felt more like observers and people who would thrust to the fore, to the foreground. Would it be stretching things to imagine this as a form of social commentary or was it really kind of in your mind they're artists and this is their um their vision of what they're seeing so i think that the realists really had the agenda of forcing this into everybody's mind these things that kind of happened at the peripheries of society that everyone just ignored maybe they knew about it maybe they didn't but i do think that degas um i want to give him credit as an as an artist i think he was interested in doing of painting forms, painting light, painting um, different postures that were not seen regularly in paintings. And so the ballet dancers, the the stage, um, the people around the stage became his muse. And I think that's an honest assessment. I don't think that he was, Mm. he was not known to be someone who, you know, came on to the young women or tried to, um, you know, abuse his own station. That said, he is known to have hired uh, some of these women as models, which would have been another way that they could earn money. And he wasn't exactly kind to them. He didn't abuse them. I don't want to suggest that he like hit them or anything like that or took sexual advantage of him but he did um come in gruel postures for hours on end he referred to them as monkeys monkey girls and his friends referred to them as monkey girls monkey girls monkeys and rats and oh my goodness how was a dancer viewed in society off the stage so this is a really interesting question, and I would say on balance, or not on balance, that's maybe a bad way to phrase it, but largely any woman that was on stage was considered something akin to a prostitute. Now, that means ballet, that means, you know, whether it was the can-can, even dating back to the Elizabethan period, you know, women were not really allowed on stage as actresses because it was considered, you know, immoral and scandalous, and, you know, if you would do that for money, what wouldn't you do for money? And 
So there's a lot of morality tied up with women on the stage for long periods of history, way before this. So there were, however, some women that were able to, to somewhat transcend this uh, thanks to their upbringing. The one that comes to mind is the one I mentioned um, earlier before, which was Marie Taglioni, who was um, a, sort of from aristocracy or at least a higher uh, status of upbringing. Uh, she was part Italian. She was part Swedish. Her father himself was a famed uh, ballet master. And so he taught her privately. Therefore, okay. she had been like kind of outside of the school system and the academy system and would only come to grace the stage, you know, like this, this fairy princess that she was. She was the one that was kind of, um, and she kind of danced, it was about 1850s, 1860s. Um, she was the one who was kind of uh, famous for having created the romantic uh, side of dance. And she was actually known as the quote unquote, Christian dancer, which is really interesting. Christian dancer. <laughs> there's nothing about anything that she ever performed that made her Christian. It's well, just, nothing you've said has sounded particularly Christian, <laughs> except maybe some self-sacrifice on the part of these young women. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally, right? On the cross every day. <laughs> and those toe shoes must not have felt good, let's be honest. Those things were made out of like cardboard old rags and glue they were hard as rocks i mean today's point shoes are filled with like gel pads and we've got like all sorts of fancy things to you know keep away the the blisters but in the past it would have just been that and maybe some lamb's wool so. oh my gosh well so the christian dancer what what was it about marie taglioni that inspired people to refer to her this way I think it was the first of all the fact that she she danced what appeared to be like pure and innocent fairy like parts but it was equally the fact that she had come from this kind of well-to-do family that she had been kept from kind of the the dark nature of the stage so when she came to perform it was like this gracing us with her presence you know she was so much better than everybody else and the way she danced was very lovely and 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 Pure. So it gave it this rise. What's interesting is that an equally famous dancer at the time, her name was Fanny Essler, did not come from this well-to-do family, and was she was actually known as the pagan dancer. Now, oh, the pagan—that sounds much more fun. <laughs> well, it is, and the thing is, is that there's nothing that necessarily made her more pagan or less Christian than Marie, except the way she danced and how she came to be on the stage. And she was just much more like kind of dramatic and fiery, and there were like coquettish qualities of her dance, as opposed to the more angelic sylph-like Marie Taglioni. So we have, once again, this kind of male gaze feeding us like, oh, she's the Christian dancer. Oh, this one's the, the pagan dancer. Like here's, clearly here's the Madonna and here's the, the slut. Oh, those <laughs> archetypes, man, they go deep. Yeah. They go deep. Tell me a little bit more about this male gaze. Did this, where did, where did the concept of the male gaze originate? Oh, well, I think you have to, I mean, academically, uh, people have been talking about different gazes for a while now. We, we recognize essentially that being a certain person of a certain gender, of a certain color at a certain time gives you a different perspective. That's essentially it, right? 
Um, so say someone growing up in 15th century Florence would have a different view of a woman on stage than someone who was born in 21st century America. Oh, sh okay. Okay. So it's sort of a broader cultural influence on, on how someone sees the world. But the male gaze, um, as we tend to, to use it kind of loosely um, when we talk, we talk about it through all sorts of different fields, is kind of this, this gaze that has been associated with perhaps mostly a European white man, but not necessarily uh, someone who is uh, wealthy and maybe educated and has a fixed view of the world from a certain point of view. And it's usually a world that's been in their favor or, you know, has been kind of tuned to them, especially, you know, because they maybe haven't yeah. had as much adversary adversity. Y yes, we, we hear about way. these white males occasionally yeah. in the modern day. Occasionally. <laughs> Sometimes they get arrested for their crimes and that's always kind of satisfying, but. But of course, fin de siècle, this is a time period when, you know, no one's talking about male gaze. It's just the established norm, so. Right, 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 right. It's a patriarchy, right? I mean, the, the patriarchy rules. Yeah, it's the patriarchy and the, the men's club at the back of the ballet was essentially the same casting couch that we're talking about fairly recently, you know? Yeah, I'm thinking of one filmmaker in particular. I'm not sure what you're thinking, Sheila. But. I was thinking exactly that same thing. <laughs> you're not that far from the same exact, you know, the same exact mind, mindset about women on stage, women in performance, women in entertainment, right? Yeah, wow. Well, Harvey Weinstein did, did finally get his comeuppance, which... Again, as I said, you know, this sort of thing is satisfying um, and not even in a sense of, of feeling spiteful as a woman myself, but, but just relief in a way that these, these practices that are unexamined because they're a deep baked in part of culture are exposed sometimes. Well, if I may, I'd like to, to, to tell you about my grandmother who was a dancer. And I would love to hear about that. She, she was, my grandmother was born in 1919 and she, she has passed away, but um, she was a dancer in Kansas city. She was on a kick line and um, that sounds she, kind of fun. Oh, I loved her. My grandmother was the best. <laughs> She's the one that inspired me to dance. But you know, when she went off to join the kick line, she was, she was excited. She was five, seven. So she was tall for a woman of her age and she anchored that kick line, which was, a very cool thing. But these ideas of women in entertainment and women specifically in dance, you know, being kind of uh, immoral or connected to immorality, deep immorality, were still pervasive in her time. I mean, this was like- This is hard to believe. Right? This is like pre and post World War II. Now, my grandmother had grown up in a very religious household uh, in Zion, Illinois. You can hear the religiosity in the name of the town, Zion, <laughs> Illinois, right? I can hear that, yes. So after, after she came back home, yet still there are very few opportunities for women to make a living on their own, and even in this day, in the 20th century. So what does she do? She opens a dance school. 
still the the thought of the day dance is still so connected to immorality and performers to immoral like behavior that she couldn't call it a dance school she had to call it i'm, I'm forgetting the exact name but it was something akin to the school for um bodily movement or the school for oh, it sounds like some pilates uh, theorizing or something ballet <laughs> it was just ballet and maybe some tap you know <laughs> in the 20th in the mid 20th century that that's actually stunning i mean i'm uh, to reveal my age somewhat, you know, I, I I did some ballet and tap in in the in the nineteen seventies and thereabouts, and we we called it as such. I'm not sure what exactly shifted, but um, it that that's incredible. Yeah, no, it is. I um I think you might know this, but I grew up doing dance as well, and in fact, that was uh, my intended career until I hurt myself. So I grew up having a lot of the lifestyle that I'm, I'm talking about with the, the bloody toes and the constantly sore body and, you know, the drive to succeed and the sense of like competition coming from everywhere. And like you had to, it was do or die at all times. That's right. And it, it's so interesting, Sheila, that you bring this dual view of this job. You are very well versed in the history of these ballet dancers um, through, uh, in some ways, through the artistic depiction as an art historian, but you are a dancer yourself, correct? I, I'd love to be still considered a dancer, but it's really probably more appropriate to say I was a dancer. Oh, I think you're always a dancer if you are once. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to, to be proud of that and tell us a little bit about your experience when you were dancing as a, as a young woman. Yeah, as a young woman, I started when I was three years old. I saw Mikhail Baryshnikov on the stage at the Santa Fe Opera. My mother had wanted to be an opera singer and um, I think had, you know, maybe performed through her university um, there maybe a couple times. And so she took me to see Mar Mikhail Baryshnikov and I think Margot Fontaine and I absolutely fell in love. Oh, wow. I wanted to do it so badly from the time I was three. And when I was 16, I ran off to join a uh, jazz company. Like ran off, literally? Yeah, well, not I mean, with the support of my family, but you know, oh, I, good. <laughs> I, I, I had to work, I had a full-time job during the day and I danced in the evening and I was apprenticed to a company. Um, at age 16? 16. At 16, So yeah. that still was happening, that recently in the past. Yeah, and it's it's still grueling. I tell you what, when, when I was doing the full-time job, I was a um, groundskeeper at Northwestern University, which is a grueling job. <laughs> my gosh. Up, 4.30 in the morning to be there at five before it got too hot and to finish at say 2.30 and then head off on the train to, you know, to, you know, go to your, your classes and all of your, uh, it was, it was crazy. So. <laughs> and Wow. And so let me ask you, did you ever feel like you were on the receiving end of a male gaze as a dancer? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. And I am so thrilled to be, to answer no. Um, if there were. I'm that, very thrilled to hear that as well. <laughs> yeah. If that was coming from off the stage, I never noticed it. It never was like, you know, presented to me. Frankly, most of the men that I danced with or who were my uh, dance teachers were gay, you know, so it was not. That helps. <laughs> yeah, it was so I mean, frankly, it was the time of my life, you know, and it wasn't until I moved on to different aspects of, um, you know, study and career that I, I encountered um, a questionable treatment from 
<laughs> the male gaze. <laughs> yes. Well, we've all we've all been on a on a street corner at some time and encountered the infamous wolf whistle. Oh yeah. Um, and so I, I'm not sure this may or may not be something you know the answer to, but I'm very curious as to when the structure of of ballet and dance, professional dance, shifted from this you know this description of the fin de siècle period, which frankly sounds like a cleaned up version of the modern sex industry and became more like what you experienced in your own dance career? That's a really good question. And I think that it happens gradually over the 20th century, right? Um, you have the professionalization of these dances. It certainly started with the uh, Paris Opera Ballet. Um, by the time we get to the fin de siècle period, and I, as I mentioned, we're talking about kind of um, vocabulary that has become kind of formalized and positions and whatnot, different uh, schools of teaching uh, are created, different uh, companies are coming into being. Mm. There started to be the Les Ballets Russes, which were the Russian ballets, um, which started to travel quite a bit and become very famous uh, for how they did things. And, you know, the ballets and the dance companies in the United States were starting to, to formalize. So I think that as it professionalized, um, speaking of the kind of the administrative and the formalization aspect of it, it would also start have uh, started to professionalize in the kind of backstage sense of it. Like, listen, these guys are performers. They are professionals. Yeah, yeah. there's no space for you on this stage. And yet we still have donors who have paid access to private behind the scenes, you know, meetings. And maybe it's still just, you know, champagne and chocolates with the, the stars of the ballet. But that's like an extra thing that the ballet dancers have to do just to please the patrons. It sure is. Despite the fact they just dance their feet off, you know, like. So there's still that kind of, you know, um, playing up to the people who, who, who pay for the privilege, right? But at least there are no men paying to sit in on our dancers, our daughters' dance classes to watch them stretch, right? Yeah, amen. <laughs> that's hardly necessary. That, that's progress. We'll take that. I don't know if you have ever seen the movie Gigi. I think it's from the 1960s and it's a, it's a lush, beautiful I'm film. I'm not sure I have. Would you tell me a little bit about it? Well, of course, I saw it as a younger woman and or young, maybe even a girl. And my understanding of the story was there was this young woman on the cusp of, you know, kind of um, adulthood. So I'm going to say she was maybe 16, 17, going on, you know, 18. And she had a friend who was very rich and he wanted to buy her lots of presents. And then all of a sudden he wanted to buy her presents exclusively and not let anyone else buy her presents. Mm. <laughs> that mm -hmm. was my perception of it. <laughs> <laughs> And later you find out that Gigi, she's a, she's a beautiful woman. She, this man has been the friend of the family for a long time. All of a sudden he takes interest in her as, as a woman, uh, as a sexual object, he can bring out in society that she can be his mistress and he's offering to pay for her apartment and pay for her lifestyle and lavish gowns and chocolates and everything that sounds like a dream. But from a grown up woman's perspective, you're like, Oh, he's, he's got woman. He's got that's what's going on. It's, it's basically pretty woman, right? That's essentially what it is, but it's set in fin de siècle Paris, which is why I mention it. And in the end, he decides he's going to marry her because he doesn't want anyone else to patronize her. <laughs> oh, wow. What a good guy. 
What a prince. <laughs> that's, that's where, I mean, if you want an idea of what was going on at this time, that's one great, great movie to, to look at. For that. And it's oh. a lush color film from the time. It's got some awkward, um, awkward uh, musical numbers, but well, we're oh, thinking. I'll have to check that out. Well, that's, that seems to go with the territory, right? Especially right, right, I think right. for that time period and this sort of willing, dis, uh, willing suspension of disbelief with all of these musical numbers. But uh, this also makes me think about the movie Moulin Rouge. Oh yeah, Baz Luhrmann's film was fantastic because it's it's modern because of its musical kind of influence behind it. Mm -hmm. um, that tango, the Roxanne tango with Sting's Roxanne blended into this like Ewan McGregor is like singing his heart out. And it's such a wonderful like movie, but that is another really good example of this specific time period. And it even features an artist in there, Toulouse-Lautrec is, um, portrayed in there because he painted and created a lot of the early posters, some of the earliest uh, oh, right. kind to advertise the can-can dancers of the Moulin Rouge. Um, and so, yeah, and so I'm sure you probably know that, you know, here we've got Satine who is uh, played by, oh, uh, Nicole Kidman. It's Nicole Kidman, yeah. Yeah, and she's just gorgeous, you know, and she's being patronized, you know, the patron uh, is supporting her, this kind of the evil guy, but he's decided that he's going to pay for everything, but he's essentially going to own her. He's going to give her gifts and he's going to put on her productions that are lavish and whatnot. And maybe he'll even see some returns from the, the ticket sales. He's essentially a producer, but he essentially owns her. And she's not allowed to have, you know, she's not allowed to love Ewan McGregor, who's absolutely in love with her. And she's not allowed to have a life of her own. She belongs exclusively to him. And I think that's a very, that's a really good example that you bring up because it's probably very similar to someone who would have been an étoile, a star of the, the, the opera ballet or the Paris ballet um, by one of these patrons who would have said, no, I'm going to pay for everything, but you're mine. Right, yeah, I mean, it's utterly chilling, frankly. And the other thing that I'm, I just, I'm thinking about, um, you were talking about uh, Toulouse with Lautrec's famous posters of the Moulin Rouge. And those are absolutely mainstream decor right. for college girls. I, I just, right. and I say this, I mean, that my college roommate had those posters plastered all over our shared dorm room. And, you know, I had no sort of thought at all that there was anything other than, oh, pretty bright colors and, oh, it's French, how chic, how sophisticated of her. And when you really delve in behind what these things are advertising and what they stand for, it, it is, it's chilling. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And um, one of the things I sometimes think is that the the can-can and the women of the Moulin Rouge who, who would, you know, often like stripped down to very, very little clothing, which was supposed to be titillating. We have to also remember that the women on stage during the ballet were also rather um, exposed, you know, their bodies were exposed in a way that wouldn't necessarily have been appropriate for a woman on the street. And in fact, it kind of led to part of this idea of them as being looser morals, because you can't be wearing something up around your neck and all the way down to your, your ankles and your, your, wrists if you're going to be free to move and and to dance and do what dance required no, not at all but then again you've got women who are used like if you're out in public 
people don't usually see your neck or your your decollage, you know, your neckline, you know, and your wrists or even your ankles. I mean, the view of an ankle could have been considered like titillating at the time, which yeah, is it's like soft. It was the soft porn of the time, exactly. it sounds like. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so that would have been part of the excitement of this. But but it's it's sanctioned. And and that's what's really so insidious about it, because these women are caught in this system, which does benefit them financially and, and in terms of social mobility for those who were very successful, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. But they paid a great price for yeah. that cost benefit. <laughs> I mean, they they played right in to all sorts of pervasive social proscriptions. But it was, it was okay because people were paying a lot of money to see it. So Sheila, how would the performance itself differ from these hours and hours and days of rehearsals these women were undergoing? The performances are so exciting. Anyone that has like danced on the stage or had children who have danced and had performances, it's very exciting. You dress up in costumes, you put on makeup, you you know your steps, but you're also nervous about forgetting them. And everything counts when you're on that stage and you're in that light that shines, you can barely see the audience, but you hear this like kind of this, this din of kind of rustling fabrics and noise, people whispering to each other. It is kind of amazing to be up there, especially in front of the number of people that would be held um, at the Paris Opera Ballet or the Paris Opera Theater. I mean, we're talking thousands of people, hundreds of people. Tell me about that. So Charles Gagné designed this brand new opera theater, which is like just gilded age, supreme, beautiful. If you ever get the chance to to look it up or to go inside even better when we can travel again, (laughs) it is one of the architectural gems of Paris. And to go there would have been in itself, I mean, to be an audience member, let alone to be on the stage would have been an exciting thing in its own right. Um, the dancers would have been preparing for you know, weeks and months, depending on the, the nature of the performance. Most companies have what's called a repertory. So the dancers are supposed to keep it in their computer brains. Like this is how, this is this part of that dance and you need to be able to remember it and kind of bring it out whenever you're supposed to perform it. But they would constantly rehearse. Then when they got to performance night, it was like, all people on hand, you know, and everyone in their places and ready to go. Yeah. And there's nothing like it. The, the energy, it's amazing. It's, it can be very addictive, but um, when you're in the audience, it's an exciting thing as well. And it's, um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit understated now when we go to theater performances, maybe, you know, my mom always made me dress up a little bit, but back then you would have worn your finest to go to the opera, to be seen at the Paris. Ah, right. Everyone was there to be seen, even the audience members, right? I, I... Possibly, especially the audience members. <laughs> <laughs> so a young woman would have maybe even had a new dress if she was wealthy enough to, to have a new dress to be seen in. It would have been uh, an outing in society. Young men would, of course, all been wearing the, the black tails and the top hats and been crisp, you know, like little penguins walking around everywhere. But it would have been a night to remember, especially you know, people walking up these beautiful stairs to their, to their seats. Um, don't forget that people would have had like beautiful brass, like opera glasses so they could see from way, way far away and see that footwork and all that beautiful dancing that the dancers are doing. 
I mean, it just sounds dreamy. It sounds like a fairy tale. It's like a Cinderella ball or something. <laughs> exactly. It seems a little bit different at the Folie Berger, the Moulin Rouge, but you know, it's, yeah. um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very much something to do in society. And you would have been looking all around to see what people were wearing and who they were with and the gossip would have been circulating. You know, it, it would really have been an event right? You didn't just, it's not like buying tickets to the movie theater. This was like, this was a thing you looked forward to. You talked about it for a long time afterwards, even if you weren't on the stage. And for the performance, wow. of course, all their weeks and sometimes months of like energy and anxiety were being poured into that moment where maybe you were getting roses thrown at you and people calling your name and screaming for you to come back out on stage. Imagine that kind of like adrenaline rush that you get from that kind of adulation. I am not a stage performer, at least I haven't been since my very mediocre high school days, but I can only imagine. And, you know, listening to you describe this really makes it possible to imagine that plenty of these women would have likely been very willing to put up with what it took to get to that point. Well, think of the alternative, right? If you didn't make it in dance, if you didn't have any talent in dance and you came from a poor family, what were you going to be doing otherwise? Were you going to be selling bread cakes on the, or cakes on the street? Or, you know, were you going to be doing laundry in the, you know, and uh, various streams or whatnot, or in various um, laundrettes, you know, were you going to be on the streets selling other things? So there weren't many options especially if you didn't have an education or didn't have a, a family behind you. So Sheila, thank you so much for this peek behind the curtain of the 19th century ballet. And really for, for showing us that it wasn't quite so frothy and elegant as it looks in all of these amazing, iconic artistic depictions. You know, obviously these dancers were doing really, really hard work. And all performing arts are hard work that way. But what really has struck me in our conversation is how uh, surprisingly and uncomfortably this line of work right. was akin to the modern casting couch. Right. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure. And, you know, I'm sorry to have maybe ruined some famous um, paintings for people, but at the same time. No, knowledge is power. I, I, think we all are grateful to you for opening our eyes. And I don't think it takes away from the enjoyment of the beautiful art, but to understand it better is the gift of the art historian. So thank you. Well, thank you. And for the, the, this wonderful opportunity and series, I'm enjoying it. As Sheila so tactfully put it, sometimes the prettiest things have a dark underbelly just waiting to be exposed. The world of ballet has long been associated with ethereal beauty and athletic grace. But as always, when we cast our modern gaze on the origins of this art form and career, we see many uncomfortable facets woven into its very fabric. It raises equally uncomfortable questions about how our modern performing arts culture will continue to be judged in the future, as so many unsavory exploitations are coming to light today in politics, business, and entertainment alike. We've come a long way, but there's a lot of work still to do. Thanks for listening. You can follow today's guest, Sheila Hoffman, on Twitter at Ucum Curatrix. That's U-Q-A-M-C-U-R-A-T-R-I-X. And on Instagram at The Curatrix. 
Have an idea for a working overtime episode? A question about how we make the show? Or just want to say hello and share your thoughts? Connect with us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. We'd love to hear from you. And you might just find your question mentioned in an upcoming episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.